With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's a pleasure to be with you, and it's a target-rich environment. Let me give you just a taste of what's coming up. If thugs at a middle school beat up your teenage daughter, would you as a parent expect the school to do something about it? Well, guess what? It didn't happen. And now a dad says he's pretty angry. That happened in Tacoma. One of these days, I'd love to talk to Jamar Pollard. He's doing the right thing by raising a public stink about what was done to his daughter. I'll give you the details on that in a moment. Should public libraries keep offering up drag queen events to your kids? I'll focus on one in particular, but we'll do that. And what about the uh, gun shop here in the Pacific Northwest? that is now being tagged by the Attorney General of Washington for selling high-capacity magazines. We're going to talk to the owner, and you might just be surprised by the story that he tells. And, of course, always hanging in the balance is the ongoing temporary restraining order against a law that was supposed to go into effect tomorrow. Ballot Measure 114 put down, uh, effectively, a ban on all gun buying by all of the 4 million-plus people who live in the state of Oregon. And if you say, well, Lars, it's only a temporary ban. Great. It's a temporary ban. When does it end? We don't know. When are they going to bring it to an end? We don't know. Uh, what's required to buy a gun? A permit. Can I get a permit? No. Do you know when they'll be available? No. I'll get into some of that as well because a judge has taken a rather strong stance using the state constitution of Oregon, which says explicitly the people shall have the right to possess guns for the defense of themselves and of the state. And now guess what? 
They're going to dodge that judge altogether, take it straight to the Oregon Supreme Court, where the justices all are, all owe their jobs. They owe their spots on the bench and their black robes to Democrat governors, and most of them on the Oregon Supreme Court, the majority of them, owe their jobs to Kate Brown. So how do you think that's going to turn out? I'll get into that as well. Glad to have you with me on a Wednesday. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we put you right to the head of the line. Just come with your wits, bring a few facts, maybe even a little bit of logic, and then stick around for some questions. We'll have a good time. If you want to answer our Twitter poll, you'll find that at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. And always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Yesterday, I asked you this. Should Northwest retail stores have to add armed security staff to be able to survive in the current high crime environment? I cited an example from outside the Northwest, from Philadelphia, where one guy who owns a gas stop and convenience store finally just got fed up with it. He hired armed security, wearing body armor, armed with AR-15s and shotguns, and said, this is the only way we're going to be able to survive in the kind of criminal environment that has been created. And we all know the things that have created it. Defunding the police because allegedly of George Floyd, uh, and prosecutors who won't prosecute, and governors who've cut loose convicted criminals literally by the thousands. All of that wrapped up into one, and you get a high-crime environment that's both dangerous to people and destructive to the retail business. I don't blame this guy for doing it, and I won't be surprised when Northwest retailers have to start doing the same thing. When I ask you, should you have to add armed security staff? 89% of you joined me in a yes vote on that. Only 11% of you said no. But let me tell you about Jamar Pollard. He's a man who lives in Tacoma. He has a daughter. She attends Baker Middle School. And eight days ago, she got beat very, very badly by another student at the school. And guess what happened? The school didn't do much of anything. Now, the dad called police. He called police after he heard about what had been done to his daughter. Did he hear from the school? Nope. Did he hear from uh, police? Nope. He had to call 911 an hour later. And I called Tacoma police today and I said, listen, this doesn't seem right. There's a law on the books that says that, and this law is frankly in place in every single one of the 50 states, 54 if you're a Biden fan, and it says if teachers, nurses, do uh, doctors, firefighters, a whole host of different people are what they call mandatory reporters, if they even suspect that a child has been abused, whether it's abuse at home, abuse by a boyfriend, or abuse by a beatdown in the middle of a middle school, that they are obligated by law and that it's actually either a criminal act or a violation for them to fail to tell the police. Well, Jamar Pollard says Tacoma school officials took too long to stop the beating. They didn't provide adequate medical care. His daughter ended up with bruising all over her face. Her eye was half swollen shut as he describes it. She had a concussion. Now, if you have somebody who has been kicked in the head, whether it's a child or an adult, do you think the first thing you might do is call a call an ambulance? Because if that person has been concussed, if they have bruising, 
in their brain, in their head. That can be life-threatening. What happens instead? He said his daughter was left battered and bruised by a vicious attack at school by a teenager more than twice her side. It's actually on video. So the school has video. He says you can't see it in the partial video. She was slammed against the wall multiple times. Cairo News quotes Jamar Pollard as saying, and slammed on the ground and kicked in the head. With that kind of head trauma, I would think that an ambulance would have been called. It was not. And neither were the Tacoma police. The school was not following law. And, you know, I've said for a long time, the mandatory reporter law should either be taken off the law books or enforced. Make a choice. If you're going to have a law that says that if a teacher or a cop or a firefighter or a paramedic or any of the other people listed as mandatory reporters, if they violate the law, and they do it all the time, they just say, I'm not going to call. The schools don't like to call the cops because then some poor little darling, all he did was beat up another student, maybe give her a concussion. Why should he have to face criminal consequences? Well, my answer to that would be because your school does not exist in a vacuum. It's not in a bubble. It's not on another planet. It's here in the United States of America, in this case, in Baker Middle School's case, in the state of Washington, and every one of the laws for the state of Washington that applies everywhere else in the Evergreen State applies inside that school and applies to that young lady and the person who beat her up badly. And if you know that she's been abused, you have to call the cops, and you should have called an ambulance. You didn't. If they went out and charged some people, I don't want to see people charged unnecessarily, but if you start sending a message, if you're a mandatory reporter and you don't report it, you, you may be going to jail. You're certainly going to be standing in front of a judge trying to explain your inaction, and it should be. And if the system has decided, well, we really don't like this law because we want to have to send a teacher to jail for not doing what the law requires, or a nurse or a doctor, then take the law off the books. One or the other, you don't get both. Coming up in a moment, that temporary restraining order that has shut down a law that was supposed to start tomorrow that would be a ban on all gun buying by all 4 million Oregonians. We'll talk about the latest in my commentary coming up next on the Radio Northwest Network. As much as I value the U.S. Constitution's Second Amendment, the words of Oregon's state constitution say it's so much better. The people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves. Isn't that beautiful wording? If only the Second Amendment were so clear. And if you don't check, if you don't believe me, check it out. Article 1, Section 27 of the Oregon State Constitution. Now we get an acid test of whether the sleazy Democrat politics in Salem will simply override that promise in the Constitution. Let me explain why. Yesterday, a circuit judge in Harney County decided that the voter-approved ban on buying guns, a ban on everybody in the state buying guns, including off-duty cops. It's called Measure 114. That circuit judge said, I'm putting on a TRO until we can determine whether or not it violates the state constitution. In the meantime, the law is on hold. Well, that judge's order goes into effect at one minute past midnight tonight exactly the same time 
as the law would go into effect and blocks the law that would have halted all gun sales to all citizens for as long as the state of Oregon chooses, maybe even as long as a year. The judge issued a TRO, a temporary restraining order, that blocks the law and demanded that the Oregon Attorney General send somebody to his courtroom in Harney County by next Tuesday to show cause why he should not extend his TRO indefinitely. Ellen Rosenblum, the Attorney General, gave a big legal middle finger to Judge Robert Rascio, announcing she will instead appeal the judge's order directly to the state Supreme Court, skipping the show cause and all the appeals courts in between. And we know that since the members of the state Supreme Court owe their jobs, all of them owe their jobs to the Democrat Party governors who appointed them, well, I expect they'll just try to find a way to ignore the Constitution and let an unconstitutional law become law and ban gun sales for the foreseeable future. Welcome to One Party Rule. And now, today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by Trademark Paving. Just pave it, serving Southwest Washington. Well, Washington County's top circuit judge is pushing back after District Attorney Kevin Barton last week faulted the court system. And why? Because the court set loose a domestic violence suspect who then went out and allegedly killed his wife and his sister-in-law on November 16th. Presiding Judge Kathleen Proctor said in a letter two days ago, to Barton, the DA, that she was already investigating why clerks failed to send the coordinates for the family's home of defendant Carlos Jimenez Vargas to a GPS monitoring company, effectively rendering the ankle tracker he was wearing absolutely useless. And yet they don't want to take responsibility for it. Sad thing when people in black robes don't want to take responsibility. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. They're currently hiring and they're paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. The MEI Group.com. Stephen Sloboden writes in and says, Lars, at about the moment your show begins today, a United States Navy guided missile destroyer with sailors manning the rails in dress uniform, attention to starboard as she sails past the USS Arizona. Remnants of the gun turret remain visible just above the waterline. The smell of fuel oil, as it still leaks from the Arizona, will permeate the air. A hand salute will be rendered. Sailors stationed at Pearl. The sights and the smells are part of the daily routine. On this day, it smells stronger. The creases in our uniform much sharper as we reaffirm our dedication to duty and our commitment to defend a great nation, signed Stephen. Stephen's right. And far too many of the news media are not going to make much mention at all of what happened on December 7th, 1941. The sneak attack by Japan on the United States of America. And I know there are lots of people who want to argue lots of conspiracy theories about it. We were attacked by another country. We fought a war. We won the war. We beat Japan, and then we helped rebuild Japan and run Japan for a number of years, and they gave up their weird philosophy and their weird ideology following their emperor, and they're now a productive member of the community of nations. I think that's a good thing. I think we should remember the thousands of lives that were lost on this day in 1941, and I don't think we should ever forget it. 
Glad to be with you. Glad to take your calls. Let me take a few minutes to introduce a man who joins me now. Uh, Mo Bagai is the owner of Federal Way Discount Guns. Uh, He turned up in the news today because uh, it turns out the Attorney General of Washington State is going after him. Uh, Mo, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, your friend, Wade of Wade's Guns, who I've known for quite a number of years, he described you as he said, of course, the article in the paper has to describe Mohammed Reza Bagai like he's an al-Qaeda terrorist. He's actually a former Ranger officer in the U.S. Army, came to the U.S. in the 70s just in time for the Iran hostage crisis and experienced the brunt of anti-Iranian sentiment. I wanted to have you on and ask, why is the Attorney General of Washington State going after you? But first, thanks for your service. You're welcome, Thurs. Thank you. Why is the Attorney General going after you and your business? Well, uh, we heard this morning uh, through social media and, and some news outlets that Federal Way Discount Guns and me, myself personally, are being sued by the state of Washington uh, for violating the Washington State's magazine ban that... Uh, they implemented as of July of 2022. And, uh, you know, we... Let me ask you this. Are you still selling magazines? Uh, We're not. Not now? Not now. Do you think that magazine ban is constitutional? No, not only is it not constitutional... And there's lawsuits against Washington State uh, because of it. And, you know, we, as a firearms dealer, are licensed by the federal government, ATF to be exact. And there's no federal regulation banning these magazines. And we are abiding by the federal law when we sold it and you know, this magazine ban bans it for law enforcement, bans it for any use, uh, which even the Supreme Court has uh, expressed an opinion saying that anything with common use uh, with respect to firearms cannot be uh, regulated. Right. And there's a federal cases against it, and they've asked Washington State to do the right thing. And we are just simply abiding by the federal law. And are your customers supportive of what you're doing? We have hundreds of emails and calls just today since customers heard saying that they're in support and thanking us for standing up and expressing, you know, sympathy with what we're going through. And, you know, we have not only the community support, but law enforcement support. And I don't want to mention law enforcement agencies' name, but they have come out and saying, we're all behind you. And... We're, we'll not enforce what Washington State has done, and we support you. Very good. Mo Bagai, we're going to be talking to him more in the future. He is the owner of Discount Guns in Federal Way. He's being targeted by the Attorney General of Washington State, and I'd love to talk to the AG of Washington State, but he doesn't return our phone calls. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. I want to talk about water a little bit because we all know that at some point the Pacific Northwest is going to be hit by the big one, the so-called Cascadia subduction earthquake. And when it happens, it's going to do a lot of damage, or so we're told. Although there was a report from the University of Washington from the engineering school just about a week ago saying some of the effects of that have been overstated to some considerable degree. But one of the biggest problems beyond transportation is you've got to get water in Portland from one side of a river, the supply side, the east side, because it's coming down from the bull run in the uh, Willamette National Forest, um, Mount Hood National Forest, I should say. And it has to get across the Willamette River. And what the engineers have said is almost all the pipes that currently cross under the river are in the riverbed. When that soil liquefies, it's going to bust the pipelines probably simultaneously, and you're going to have the multi-billion dollar effect of devastation because you won't have fire you won't have water to fight fires that may happen you won't have water for for people to use to drink to bathe to do all the other things they need to do and nigel jaquis uh you know i i can't say enough good things about this guy he's a great friend of the show pulitzer prize winning reporter and the story you find at wweek.com is absolutely stunning in its uh, i don't know it's it, your documentation of the stupidity of the people in government who said we'll solve the problem and now they've figured out, no, we can't solve the problem, but we're going to try to do it anyway. It, d- does this make any sense to you, Nigel? It, it is a puzzler. So you're right. There are five pipelines uh, uh, through the Willamette. They're along the bottom of the river. They're very old. There's one on the Ross Island Bridge, which is not seismically sound. So as long as 22 years ago, the Water Bureau said, well, we need to do something to get water. There are 360,000 people, three hospitals, all the downtown employment on the west side. So they decided what the answer was, was to drill through rock uh, about 150 feet under the surface and to put a pipeline, a new large pipeline through that rock. Uh, it wouldn't be affected seismically if the big quake comes. Well, uh, come to about 2020, they finally did some test drilling and they found that they couldn't drill through that rock and pull a pipeline uh, behind the drill. So. They're going to come back to council probably in the first quarter of next year and say, look, we told you it was going to be 150 feet deep. We told you it was going to be through rock. Now it's actually going to be 80 or 90 feet deep, and it's not going to be in rock. It's actually going to be in soil. Uh, so the people who are most directly affected by that, who live in the south waterfront area, I really dug into the documents. One of them is a nuclear uh, physicist, nuclear engineer, and he's like, Look, I spent I spent a lot of time looking at these documents. They don't make any sense because the original problem was all the pipelines are in alluvial soil at the bottom of the river. Well, they're going to put a new pipeline in alluvial soil at the bottom of the river. It's probably going to cost a hundred million bucks, and we probably won't be any safer than we were before they did it. So they'll go ahead with the project because they had planned a pipeline project, and even if they can't do it the way they promised to, in a way that would solve the problem, because am I right that even if you build a modern pipeline today and you pump it and you you tunnel it through soil, that no matter how strong that pipeline is, if the big one comes and starts liquefying that soil, it's likely going to bust the pipe. Is that... is. Am I right that in concluding been, that? That has been the premise all along until they actually started drilling. And then they said, well, no, actually, that's not the premise. So uh, it, it could feel a little bit like a bait and switch. Well, it does because – and, and here's the other piece that jumped out at me from your story. I'm talking to Nigel Jacobs. Find the story at wweek.com. You said when they first proposed it, they said oh, it's going to be $57 million. And they can draw on yep. the Water Bureau money, I assume. This is an enterprise fund, so everything the water users get charged – 
goes to supplying water so they could they could fund the thing sure. but now you say they won't tell you what it's currently going to cost how how is it possible to have a project that's underway and or un, somewhat underway at least in planning and they can't even tell you what it's going to cost well it's interesting so in 2015 when they asked to be uh, exempted from uh, competitive bidding they thought the project would cost $57 million. In 2018, when they came back and said, okay, we found our sole source contractor, we think it's going to cost $90 million. Then in 2020, when they actually started doing the exploratory drilling uh, and hit the rock, the contractor said it's going to cost $105 million. And, and the Water Bureau engineer said, well, we don't have that much money. We need a value engineer. Let's reduce that cost. So they reduced it to about 85 at that point, but now they don't know what it's going to cost. So they we're supposed to come to the city council this month for an update, including a new cost. Uh, they don't have it, so they've asked to uh, push that uh, update to council back into the first quarter of next year. And no, in a short answer to your question, they uh, would not or could not tell me what the current cost is. Do you think they really don't know or they just don't <clears throat> want to tell you because the public's going to go bananas when they hear the number? Well, you know, I suspect it may be the latter. I don't know. But, you know, you and I have talked in the past or you've talked a lot in the past about the extraordinary cost of the filtration system that they're building in East Multnomah County. These are very large, very complex engineering projects. And in the process, the price has a tendency to drift one direction, which is up. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they probably do know how much it's going to cost because they've been working on this project hard for 12 years and, and in general for more than 20 years. So I, I suspect they know how much it costs. Well, here's the thing. And I, I was going to bring up the filtering plant because that's eight tenths of a billion dollars they want to spend or they, they are already plan starting to spend. And if if they lied to the council and said these pipes will break in an earthquake and now they say, no, nah, they'll be fine buried in soil. Did they also lie about the need for a filtration plant at $800 million in cost? Because when you start lying to us about things, I think, like judges often say in court, if you find that a witness has lied in part of his testimony, you are free to not disbelieve all of his testimony. In, in fairness to the Water Bureau, they tried everything they could to not build that filtration plant, and the feds finally said, no, you must build it. And then, as you uh, recall, the feds have now said, and we'll lend you the money for it. The whole, the whole project is pretty wonky and bigger than we have time to discuss today. But I, I think it's fair to say that these big projects only go in one direction, and that's more expensive. Okay, and if they've now given up their original claim that the big one is going to bust all the pipes and downtown and a bunch of hospitals will find themselves with no water and no water to fight fires that probably will happen after a major earthquake... Uh, if they've given that up and said, no, they probably won't bust, we can run a pipe through the, through the mud, then, then why can't they keep the pipes that are there already? Or maybe upgrade the pipes that are already buried in the mud and do it at a much cheaper price? Uh, the, uh, the upgrade question is one I don't know the answer to. The, the second question, why not stick with the existing pipes? They say that by putting this new pipe in 80 or 90 feet uh, of depth, which is substantially deeper than the current pipes that they'll be in a place where the soil will liquefy less so so the pipe engineer. will break I, less i mean i thought pipes breaking was like pregnancy you either are or you aren't uh that would be my assumption as well uh i'm hoping to do further reporting on this can you also report that this is in the steady hand of somebody on the city council or not 
Well, uh, no, because that, I mean that's part of the issue. The council last heard this matter in 2018. Uh, I think the only member of the council who was on then, who is still on, is Mayor Wheeler. And so four of the five members of council have never had this officially presented to them. And I think what's going to be presented next year will be very different from what the previous council approved. So uh, I, I think it's fair to say that, that, that a lot of this information will be new to the city council. Fair enough. You can read the story by Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Nigel Jaquist at WWeek.com. Nigel, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you, Lars. You betcha. Back in a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. If you want to send emails, talk at LarsLarson.com. If you're a naysayer, 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that. Should public libraries keep offering drag queen events to kids? I'll talk about one Northwest newspaper that likes the idea that your kids should be able to go to drag queen stories. I'll name the paper. We'll talk the issue. We'll get to your phone calls next. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and I'll get to naysayer calls here in just a moment. Our Twitter poll today, should public libraries keep offering drag queen events to kids? I don't think much of the idea. In fact, I hate the idea. I don't think this is the kind of stuff that ought to be presented to children. And when it's being presented by taxpayer-funded things like the Fort Vancouver Regional Library Board that decided that it was okay to do this, and then you have the Vancouver Columbia newspaper saying, "Ah, eh, there's nothing wrong with this. Kids should be exposed to drag queens. I have a problem with it. But I'll ask you the question. Uh, it's right down the middle. Should public libraries keep offering drag queen events to kids? You can find the question at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Yesterday, and this is what the naysayer is about, yesterday I asked you this question off that business owner in Philadelphia who said his city is so beset by violent crime and the cops can't do their job and the prosecutor won't do his job and the courts won't do their jobs. So he finally added some armed security. I asked you, should Pacific Northwest retailers add armed security staff to their stores? And I answered yes to that. I'm curious why Dan would be a naysayer on that. Dan, welcome to the program. I don't know if we've talked before or not, but uh, what do you and I disagree about today? We have spoken before. Thank you for taking my call. Um, <clears throat> the issue is not whether the security officers should carry guns or not. It's a good deterrent. However, <clears throat> uh, the politicians have basically made stealing. Uh, they've done the same thing to stealing as they did with um, drugs, where they made it where it's basically usable. How about, how about uh, we'll I mean? call it de facto legal, because that seems to irritate people, Dan, when I say it. And they say, what do you mean by de facto legal? I said, if you say it's still officially illegal on the books, but nobody actually pays attention to the law, that's what I call de facto legal. I can't call drugs in Oregon, hard drugs, legal, because technically they're still illegal. But if you have a law and the law never gets enforced and it has no consequence, you know, it's de facto legalization. And and I think you're right that the politicians and the courts and the prosecutors and to some extent the folks who give the police their marching orders have made retail theft legal. And if you didn't notice in another part of America in the last couple of days, an older gentleman working at, I think, a Home Depot 
a thief just piled up a bunch of pressure washers on a cart and started wheeling them out of the store. So it was a theft. And this this older gentleman who was one of the uh, Home Depot clerks on video is seen walking up trying to get the guy to stop. And he doesn't doesn't even touch the guy. And the guy just stiff arms him, knocks him to the ground. That man has now died. So we're talking about things that are actually putting people's lives at risk. And, of course, all of us who go to retail stores know when a thief goes in and steals $1,000 worth of this or $1,000 worth of that, we all pay the cost through higher prices. So if armed security is not the answer, what is the answer? Uh, well, thank, thank you um, for telling me the term de facto legal. That was the term I was trying to remember. <clears throat> um, I actually used to work as an armed security officer. And I was told by retailers, hey, if you, someone walks in and you see them grab an armful of stuff, take a good description as to who they are, what they look like, and what direction they went in. Do not touch them. <clears throat> I, actually, I actually had one guy who walked in, stole something, I, and the way the law is written, it's you have to see them steal it. You have to keep them in view the whole time that they're there. You have to see them actually as they're walking, and I have to have one foot in and one foot out the door. I actually was able to do that once, and the guy just handed me back the thing and said, okay, see you next week. When I try again, bye, and off he went. And I'm I don't not allowed doubt, to detain him. I don't doubt everything you've said matches with my experience as well. But here's the question. How do you get this stopped? And I think what this guy has done by stationing armed security at his store, and since they're carrying long guns or a shotgun, they're very visible. I have a feeling a lot of the crooks are going to dodge that store. It may mean they go down the block to a different store, but at least it has some deterrent effect for him. So what other choice does a retailer have uh, if the system won't do its job? And, and if we cooperate by saying, well, just let them steal, get a description, knowing full well nothing will be done with the description, you'll hand it to the cops, and the cops will say, okay, average guy, this color, hair, blah, 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 and they know they're not going to catch the guy. They know that even if they caught the guy, if the guy walked up to the cops and said, hey, by the way, I'm the guy who ripped off the pressure washers at the Home Depot, they're not going to prosecute him. And even if they arrest him, the DA is not going to bring charges against him and the courts won't do anything to him. So you've got a, a direction from your boss to get a description for which nothing will happen. Oh, I'm aware of that. And again, I think that these... Uh the guy who I believe it was a gas station did the right thing. But again, right now we have to deal with our politicians and say, hey, make it safer. You're the ones causing this problem. You did, you did the de facto uh, legalization of, of drugs. Now you're doing de facto legalization of retail theft. Yeah, you Stop know, <laughs> the only one I can think of, and I understand the retailer's concern about liability, about being sued and blah, blah, blah. The only thing I could think of is we've all gotten used to electric doors going in and out of stores and, and other locations. As far as I'm mm -hmm. concerned, they put in the little glass box like you have when you're leaving the airport from the secure area to the non-secure area where you walk in there. I know they can lock that box down. As far as I'm, I would applaud a store if they said, we're not going to hire armed security. You're going to walk in through a door, but when you go to exit the store, you're going to walk through a glass box. And if you're a legitimate customer, you'll walk right on through. And if you're a crook, we'll hit the switch, you'll be locked in a box, and then we'll call the police and we'll say, you have to arrest this guy. He's got the stolen goods right in his hand. Nobody's life put at risk. Nobody's going to get sued. And maybe the bad guy goes to jail. You've got the Radio Northwest Network. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? 
The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls in a bit. Uh, we're on the Radio Northwest Network, which has served the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 22 and a half years with honestly provocative talk. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the program the police chief of the city of Eugene, Chris Skinner. Chief Skinner, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lars. I'm happy to be here with you this afternoon, and congratulations on 22 years. Well, you know, we'll, we'll hit 23 next year. We're just going to keep adding them up. But we're, we're trying to do our best to tell, you know, the issues of the Northwest. You've got a big one in front of you because I've been telling people for six months, Measure 114 is a de facto ban on buying guns. And they say, well, it's only temporary. And I say, yeah, it's temporary indefinitely. So nobody knows when they'll have the permits in place. Nobody knows when they'll have the classes in place. And, and it's being challenged in at least five different lawsuits. And now a judge in Eastern Oregon has said it violates the very clear directive in Article 1, Section 27 of the state constitution that says the people shall have the right to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state. I think that's pretty clear cut, but I'm not exactly, you know, holding out hope that a Democrat appointed Supreme Court, uh, state Supreme Court is going to come to that same conclusion. So you're on the front lines of this. I want to get your unvarnished take on ballot measure 114. If you've got an opinion about its constitutionality, I'd love to hear it. And is it feasible that they can even make this thing work in some way, shape, or form without violating a whole lot of people's rights? Well, what I will say is that I don't have the luxury of having an opinion when I'm speaking on behalf of the city of Eugene and an entire state of chiefs as OACP president. But what I will tell you, Lars, is that we are up to our eyeballs and trying to figure out what ballot measure 114 means for us as permitting agents. And I know OSP is equally struggling to figure out as the department as defined in, in ballot measure 114, what they're supposed to do. The one thing I can assure you that come tomorrow, December 8th, none of us as chiefs statewide will have the ability to accept individuals into our lobbies of our police departments to start filling out a application for a permit to purchase. And that's frustrating because as a service industry, we want to provide service. And in this particular case, we've got more questions than we have answers in how we would provide that service. You mean the attorney general wasn't serious when they represented to a judge last Friday? We'll be ready by next Thursday, by tomorrow. Uh, they, and and they, they rescinded that over the weekend, but they actually represented to a judge. You folks are all ready to go. Uh, was that yeah, not, not the truth? Yeah, we're not we're not ready to go. And and one of the challenges and one of the frustrating pieces of this is that our lawmakers and the committees that are in our legislature that make an awful lot of decisions uh, for this state, we more times than not 
are invited to the table to offer feedback and to and provide some perspective on unintended consequences. We've got a great track record of working with our, our elected officials. In this particular case, ballot measure 114 was written absent any input from law enforcement that I know of that would help them better understand kind of the nuances of the process and how difficult this was going to be for law enforcement agencies across the state to be ready to go. And the December 8th deadline you know, that that snuck up on us. We thought we had at least until January, and I'm not saying we would have been ready then, but the December 8th deadline was certainly a surprise to us. When you deal with violent crime, Chief, let me ask you this. Can you remember the last time your cops arrested somebody who committed a violent crime with a gun they'd actually obtained legally? You know, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not sure that I'm personally I'm privy to uh, it comes all the way to me with regards to to doing the the weapons check to see where the gun where the gun uh, came from. So what I do know is that there's provisions already in law that and I what I would say what I could say on behalf of of all of our chiefs is, is none of us want guns in the wrong hands. There's no question about that. There's people that 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 struggle to make good decisions and and having a, a deadly weapon in their hand is not is not smart and there's provisions within the law that help us articulate who could or who couldn't get a permit to purchase. But with respect to violent crime in all of our jurisdictions, we're, strategies are in place all over the state to try and lower our violent crime rates. And it's not just anchored to the, the purchase of firearms. Um, you know, we're seeing equally amount, uh, equal amounts of violent crime in our community with edged weapons as well. And so yep. when we think about violent crime, we have to approach that holistically um, from, a, from a community perspective approach that holistically as opposed to just focusing in on one area well i don't expect my friends in tv to repeat this but the actual number is 92 percent of violent crimes are not committed with a gun eight percent are so the rest of them are done with you know somebody's hands a fist a blunt object a bunch of edged weapon etc let me ask you about this unintended consequence do you encourage your officers to carry a gun off duty we make that their choice uh, there's a, there's a couple of different nuances to <clears throat> any time a chief of police encourages anything, it feels uh, vaguely like an order. And so I'm c- careful about what I encourage my officers <laughs> well, to do and not to do. And, there, <laughs> and there's some un- unintended consequences on that, which is a uh, feeling like there's a duty to intercede. Are you constantly on duty? Is there some uh, labor um, labor implications to that? And so I don't openly encourage people to do that, but it is definitely a personal choice. Now, and, come on, uh, Chief, many Chief, of my officers do. Chief Skinner, you're telling me that if one of your officers walked in and said, hey, boss, I watched an armed robbery yesterday. I could have interceded, but I was off duty. What would you say to that officer? Well, it depends on the totality of the circumstances of that oh, officer yeah. standing there with his minor children and his wife. I would say that's a good choice. And, and I agree. Um, I agree. And, uh, and so I, I it, is, get... it is a totality of circumstances for us. In the time we've got Tell me this, though. When one of, yes, let's assume the T- TRO goes to next Tuesday. Ellen Rosenblum's people don't show up before the judge in Harney County, and the TRO is, expires and the law goes into effect. Will your cops be, will your officers be able to buy a gun to use off duty? Because they can't use their on duty gun. So are they going to be able to buy a gun after next Tuesday if the law goes into well, that- effect? I don't know the answer to that question. We've got 
a litany of questions that is sitting at DOJ right now to try and get some clarity. And that's one of the areas of questions that we have is around how this affects uh, our police officers and their ability to purchase firearms and whether they fall under the same umbrella as everybody else. And so we sit as OACP, we sit waiting for some clarity from DOJ so that we can get moving on what a permit to purchase process is going to look like with our partners at OSP. All right. Now, let me ask you this. If they put in, let's say they get it all up and running, the classes are running, certified by law enforcement, permits are being issued to buy a gun that's already background checked when the purchaser buys it. Is it going to make, in the totality of circumstances, is it going to make a difference in, in crime? Well, it's hard to tell that until we have a body of evidence in front of us in a period of time that we can do the analytics around that. I mean, what we have, what we know right now is that we have violent crime rates going up in a variety of our different jurisdictions from a variety of different implement uh, implements or weapons to, to include hands, as you articulated earlier. But until we get a, a body of work underneath us that we can go back and analyze, I'm not sure we can answer that. Okay. I mean, my, my supposition is everybody who buys a gun at a gun store right now has to go through a background check. I don't think we need the permit system. I think it hamstrings law-abiding, does nothing to the criminals, but that's just my take, and I'm not a cop and I'm not a lawyer. Chief Skinner, it's a pleasure to have you on. We'll look forward to having you back. All right. Thanks, Lars. Take care. Take care. Now, that is the chief of police from the city of Eugene. That's Chris Skinner, and I'm glad to have him on the program. Coming up in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And what's going on with all the attacks on electrical infrastructure from coast to coast? Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I want to get to your phone calls and emails here in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. As you know, if you're a naysayer, we love the naysayers on this program. For 25 years, we've always welcomed the naysayers. And if you want to be a naysayer, call in, tell the producer that you want to disagree with me about something, and that's fine. Just bring your wits, a few facts, maybe a little bit of uh, logic to go with it, and then stick around for some questions from me. Have you noticed the reports that have been happening in the last couple of weeks? Infrastructure attacks, in particular on the power grid of the United States, like the one that happened in North Carolina. And I want to tell you this, that Department of Homeland Security had sent out a bulletin about three days before this attack in North Carolina issuing a warning that, quote, lone offenders and small groups, end quote, could be plotting attacks and that the nation's critical infrastructure was among the possible targets. And then uh, electrical substations were shot up. And I'm not sure how you go about protecting infrastructure from that kind of attack. It's not like a cyber attack where you say, well, we can load up some protective software or malware prevention stuff. That warning Uh, widespread power outages in North Carolina that shut off the power to about 45,000 utility customers. That means over about 100,000 people were affected by that. And apparently the power outages are going to go on for some time because the kind of damage that was done is not readily readily repaired. And then in my neck of the woods, in the Northwest, the feds have been warning about infrastructure attacks, and now power companies in both Oregon and Washington have reported physical attacks on substations using just about everything under the sun. Hand tools, arson, firearms, metal chains, things like that, that they've gone after the infrastructure. Now, I've talked about this on the program for a good long time. We have a lot of possible threats to our electrical infrastructure. 
And if you think this isn't just about keeping your cell phone charged, it's not just about making sure that your big screen works or your computer works, this has to do with the things that pump water or pump sewage or refrigerate food or do any manner of other things that are absolutely critical they can be existential threats if you knock out the power for long enough. And for the longest time, we've identified threats like electromagnetic pulse, either one generated by the sun or one generated by some kind of terrorist activity on Earth or one generated by an attack from a, a country like North Korea by a, a nuclear weapon that can send out an EMP. And we've suggested hardening of some of those infrastructure locations. But here's the way the memo is describing it. In recent attacks, criminal actors bypass security fences by cutting through, lighting nearby fires, shooting equipment from a distance, or throwing objects over the fence and onto the equipment. Utility companies are aware of a deliberate attack uh, that has occurred in Oregon. They're also working with the FBI on that. And then they've got the attack in North Carolina as well. And you wonder, at what point do we decide this is something that we can't just address by saying, well, it's a one-off? We're going to go out and, and deal with the power outage when it happens. We'll repair the damage, and we'll get everything back in order. That's not the way that's going to work. You're going to have to make those hard targets to go after. I'm not sure the utility companies are crazy about that idea, but I would ask you this question. Would you rather have your local utility company spending oodles of money on windmills and solar panels and things like that, or would you rather have them spending money to make sure that the infrastructure that actually gets the electricity to your house or to your business stays intact, even when it comes under a deliberate attack. It's just a question I think we ought to be asking. And if there's a cost to it, including the cost of guarding against EMP and threats like that, I think it's a cost well worth paying because when we've talked about it before to experts, they'll tell you it's a few percentage points to harden things like substations and big power transformers. If you decide not to do it, one of the nasty things is not just during a supply chain crisis, which I think we're still suffering from right now, but when you talk to utility companies and say, if that big transformer substation goes out, how long does it take to get the spare parts to repair it? And they'll tell you, in some cases, it may be years because these are the kinds of things where the, they don't have a big warehouse full of spare transformers. In, in many cases, the transformers are physically uh, gigantic. They're physically difficult to move. They're very expensive. And if you have one go out altogether, then you have to order, the, order from the company that, and they go out and make one. And that's going to take a lot of time. And then getting it there is going to take some time. I've suggested in the past that what I thought always made sense when you're talking about maybe a 3 to 5% difference in cost is have some of the utility companies start to say, what are the most critical parts of our electric grid? Where are the transformers that could either be taken out by a terrorist attack or by these physical attacks that we've been seeing in, on the East Coast and on the West Coast of the United States? Let's harden those positions now. Let's get better physical security around them, and let's order some new transformers. Yes, there's a cost to it, but if you say we're going to order new transformers that will be tough to attack with EMP, tougher to attack physically or with software, and then if we're replacing a perfectly good transformer that's already in place, we'll put that one in the warehouse 
and that will end up being one of our spares. If you began to do that over the course of the next couple of decades, you could end up with a fairly good supply of spares as well as newer transformers that are actually hardened against that kind of attack. Let's go to Henry. Hey, Henry, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Two things, uh, two subjects. One was uh, the one you just mentioned about the hardening of the electric structure. I think they should put bounty hunters on them, like in uh, the movie Wind River. They put a bounty hunter out for the, the wolves. And then the yeah. other thing about the glass box, you said at the end of your show, well, now we caught the guy, but they're gonna, are they going to come prosecute him? I think we should just, uh, there's restaurants across America that say, I'll give you a 5% discount if you come with your, your arms, you know, uh, shown, uh, what do you call that, uh, open carry. And so they get a 5% discount for eating at the restaurant, and nobody makes trouble at those restaurants. So why don't we just do that with our, with our stores and whatnot? Make open carry, you get a 5% discount. I, you know, there's an idea. Now, do you think most of the retail stores would actually tolerate it? Because every time, I, I'm, I'm not even a fan of open carry. And one of the reasons is I don't want the bad guys to know who's carrying a gun. I think there's a benefit to the bad guy thinking, well, depending on where I am in America, all 50 states have concealed carry. More than a third, almost a half of all the states have what's called constitutional carry, where you don't even have to get a permit. Your permit is the Second Amendment to the federal constitution. But in those places where people open carry, then you get a bunch of snowflakes, you know, these political snowflakes who get all wound up and they say, oh, I saw somebody with a gun on his hip. You go, well, if he's carrying it openly, he's not, he's not a criminal in most, most cases because if you're a convicted felon, it's a crime for you to carry the gun and you'll likely get arrested. But if you're a law-abiding citizen, uh, I, I just worry because then what they try to do, and they tried to do this with Starbucks, the national coffee chain, they went to Starbucks and said, we don't like people carrying openly in your stores. And the, and the uh, Schultz, who was then, Howard Schultz, who was then the head of the company, uh, the guy who originated or actually built it to what it is, he said, as long as they're following the laws of the state we're operating in, I don't care. And then he got, he got more, even more pressure, and all of a sudden they began to say, we don't want people carrying openly. I think it ends up being a big political fight between all the law-abiding people, and of course the only folks who actually benefit from that are the criminals. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at LarsLarsonShow and at LarsLarson.com, and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get back to your phone calls and emails shortly, but I want to bring something to your attention. Uh, for the last few years, we've been seeing more and more evidence that U.S. government agencies have participated in shoveling out bad information, especially in advance of elections, and most particularly uh, before the 2020 election, when you saw former uh, intelligence officers of the United States uh, sign a letter saying, oh, all that Hunter Biden stuff on the laptop, that's all Russian disinformation. And it was also Russian disinformation uh, that anybody else hacked to the Democrat Party emails. Well, Aaron Mate is a reporter for Real Clear Investigations, and he's done a great piece that you can find at RCI about this and about one private cybersecurity firm in particular with the rather novel name. Uh, many of us heard it first a few years ago. Aaron may have been way ahead of us at that point. It's called CrowdStrike. Aaron, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Would you mind explaining to my audience what, what is CrowdStrike and what's its significance 
to uh, many of the claims of Russian disinformation that all of us heard over the last couple of years as an explanation of uh, anything bad that came up involving Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and a lot of other things. Sure. So most people who have followed the whole uh, Russia story for the last six years or so will will be familiar with the fact that the Hillary Clinton campaign hired a firm called Fusion GPS. And Fusion GPS, in turn, hired Christopher Steele. Uh, the former British spy who produced the Steele dossier, uh, which was then used by the FBI for many things in in its Russia investigation, including uh, tapping it uh, as a source to go to the FISA court and get a surveillance warrant on Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign volunteer. And most people know by now what a scandal that is, that the FBI basically, first of all, relied on opposition. uh, I can't even call it research because it was all just it was all fiction that Steele wrote trying to paint Trump as a Russian asset. And just what a scandal it was that the FBI knew it was false, knew who was paying for it, and concealed all of that from both the FISA court and the American public. So people know by now that that's a scam. What people don't know is that uh, Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele were not the only contractors working for the Clinton campaign. Another contractor was a firm called CrowdStrike. And just like Christopher Steele concocted concocted the collusion allegations that fueled, you know, more than two years of endless innuendo about a Trump-Russia conspiracy, another Clinton uh, contractor, CrowdStrike, they generated the allegation that Russia hacked the DNC on Trump's behalf. So what that means is that the two allegations at the core of Russiagate, which has been such a consequential scandal, we're still living it out, you have Clinton campaign contractors. Fusion GPS and Steele, they came up with the collusion angle that Trump was a Russian asset. And CrowdStrike came up with the allegation that Russia had hacked the DNC, presumably to help Trump, because it was CrowdStrike that first made the allegation. And uh, who were they working for? They were working for Michael Sussman. And Michael Sussman is an attorney for Hillary Clinton. And he's the one who's attorney at Perkins, or he was at Perkins Coie, which is a major Democrat Party law firm, right? Yes. And he was indicted by uh, special counsel John Durham last year for allegedly lying to the FBI when he was trying to sell to the FBI these uh, that tale about a Trump-Russia bank server, the Alpha Bank. So, you know, the steel angle has gotten attention, and people realize how corrupt that was, but it hasn't gotten nearly enough attention that CrowdStrike was also working for Hillary Clinton when it made that allegation that basically kicked off uh, Russiagate. Well, and and has, well, I can't say was anything they said true, because I've found that many of the liars in politics tend to say we're going to wrap, we're going to wrap our false allegations and a bunch of other things that people know to be true, because then it makes them look true. It's it's like salting a gold mine. You know, you say, well, that couldn't be true. Well, all the other stuff around it is true. and, And this is a problem. And then not only that, but you've got when Sussman went to the FBI and said, hey, you got to take a look at this stuff. You know, all these allegations about a secret computer server in Trump Tower and all that. What was the name of the guy who sat in on that meeting and didn't take any notes and didn't record the conversation? It was J- James Baker, wasn't it? Correct. And who is Jim Baker working for now? Well, just until this week, just he until was working this for week. Twitter. He worked for Twitter. So he goes from uh, yeah. a chief legal counsel for the FBI 
uh, connected yeah. to almost anything that was Russiagate related. And then he leaves the FBI under a cloud and Twitter says, well, we'll hire you. And at Twitter, he's the guy who backs up the idea. Yeah, we got to shut down this Russian disinformation that's that's going to be pushed out across Twitter. So stop that story before it goes anywhere. This guy seems to be a point of contact for just about the whole thing. And that's what you find often in this whole scandal is a lot of the same people are involved in making claims that turn out to be false and that happen to serve their partisan interest. In the case of, uh, you know, the, the whole Russia hacking allegation, that helped deflect attention from the content of those emails that were released in 2016 and helped make the public believe that all this was just a Russian influence operation. And same thing with, with, with 2020. Then instead of talking about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, we were talking about, uh, well, for, at first we weren't even talking about it because we weren't allowed to read it because people like Jim Baker at Twitter censored it. <laughs> but yeah. um, going, going back to, uh, to the question you raised is like, you know, can we trust what CrowdStrike says? Can we, can we trust their claims? Well, the best source on that, I think, is none other than Sean Henry, who is the president of CrowdStrike. And in December 2017, Henry testified to Congress under oath, where unfortunately you have to tell the truth. And what he told them is a really damning admission that we, the public, only found out nearly three years later, in May 2020. So he said this in December 2017, just as Russiagate was in full swing. And we didn't learn this until more than two years later, May 2020. And this is what he said. He was asked, do you you know when exactly these Russian hackers stole the emails from the server? And he said, well, you know what? We actually don't have concrete evidence that anything was uh, exfiltrated from the server. And the House Intelligence Committee uh, members questioning him were, I think, a bit taken aback, because that's a pretty damning admission. In public, you're accusing Russia of hacking the DNC. In private, you're saying you don't have concrete evidence of it. And he said, yes, uh, like my, and and if if you read the transcript, his lawyers have to tell him something to get him to basically tell the truth. He says, my lawyers just reminded me we don't actually have concrete evidence. (laughs) of any kind of exfiltration. And Aaron, let me ask you about something. Let me ask you about this. So we don't know how the emails got out. We do know they got out because we confirmed that they were Podesta's emails and everybody else. Do we know that it wasn't an inside job, say disaffected people within the Democrat Party who said, we're not happy that Bernie Sanders got screwed over, and he did. Um, So we're going to push this stuff out there, not because we're Russia trying to help Trump, but because we're loyal Democrats within the Democrat Party who aren't happy that you screwed over one of our Democrat candidates to give it to Hillary. The only so-called evidence we have that Russia did it is the fact that U.S. intelligence officials have said it. They've never shown us us any of the underlying evidence. They just expect us to take their claims on faith. Just like we were expected to take on claim uh, on faith the claim that Iraq had WMDs and was working with with Al Qaeda, and just as we yep. were supposed to take on on faith the claim that Hunter Biden's laptop really was the product of Russia. And every time we look at the evidence, uh, as Sean Henry had to admit of CrowdStrike, the evidence is not there. So I think it's quite possible that it was uh, someone on the inside and not a hacker. I don't know. The point is this should be investigated. I've tried to get. Uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, just the reports that CrowdStrike wrote for the FBI and that the FBI used for its investigation of the server. Because, by the way, another part of this, yeah. CrowdStrike and the DNC did not give the FBI access to the server. No, they the didn't. FBI asked, the FBI so asked you, you, have, you, you have hacking, which is a crime, 
And the law yep. enforcement, the chief law enforcement agency of the United States says, yeah, we don't need to look at your computers. We'll take your word for it, what's in there. And when have you ever seen cops do that? Aaron Mate is an investigative reporter with Real Clear Investigations. Aaron, it's always a pleasure. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your calls. And this segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com. For an instant offer to sell your home immediately, no showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Our Twitter poll today, and you're free to vote on it, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or LarsLarson.com. Should public libraries keep offering drag queen events to kids? I would suggest that's a terrible idea. I hope that the libraries understand that a lot of us are going to vote no on every single library bond measure that comes up if you continue to push this stuff in front of kids. And yet, get this, the Vancouver Columbian thinks there's absolutely no problem whatsoever with doing this. They say for over three years, the monthly Fort Vancouver Regional Library Board of Trustees meeting has spiraled out of control. The Vancouver Library community held three drag queen story hours And this is how the newspaper, The Fish Wrapper, describes it. Events where performers dressed in drag and read children's storybooks featuring tales of inclusion and acceptance. Talk about grooming and indoctrination put in together. The paper goes on to say, proposed from within the community and widely attended. The event was an early piece of the library's dive into hosting events that highlight diversity, equity, and inclusion. Soon after the event started, An opposition group started forming, claiming without proof that the story hours were harmful to children and they contributed to gender confusion. Yeah, crazy idea that. You know, take a five-year-old kid to a drag queen story hour and say, you think he might be confused about why that man is dressed as a woman and usually garishly dressed that way? And why is he reading kids' stories to kids? And if anybody thinks that's a great idea, I'd be glad to take the naysayer call at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go to Fred. And if you want to join, 866-439-5277. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind? And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. Well, hello, Lars. I hope you're having a great day. What's on my mind is my car was stolen in Portland. And it's been nothing but a fiasco dealing with the district attorney's office. Like today, I called in to find out they finally appointed a lawyer to my case, and they gave me a runaround to three different offices, and then they put me in the voicemail. Then when I call back, they don't even answer their phone now. They seem to think that the public defenders only come from the public defender's office. Well, my understanding of the Constitution, it states that you're supposed to be able to if you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you with no charge. It's not safe from the public defender's office. I don't understand the situation. Well, Ain't they following the Constitution? That's that's a little bit. Well, all I'd say is if if you're in the state of Oregon and you're accused of a crime, you have to be accused within the county where the crime happened. So in that county, either the county or the state has to provide you with a public, with a, a, a council is what the Constitution actually says, which doesn't necessarily mean a lawyer, uh, because they really didn't have lawyers the way we mean it today back then when mm-hmm. they wrote the requirement. And these days, uh, Oregon is one of the most generous states in America when it comes to public defenders. There is a gigantic amount of money that has been spent. And we pointed out, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, I got the numbers from friends of mine, that where the public defenders in Oregon 
at one point about five years ago, represented about 100,000 defendants. These are individual cases. That number has dropped by about 42%. At the same time, in the last 10 years, their funding has gone up by 54%. So imagine running an enterprise where the workload of your, whatever your enterprise is, a business, a service, whatever, your workload is down 42%. Your income has gone up 5% a year and then some for the last 10 years. Do you think you'd ha- you sh- you should have any problem whatsoever supplying the service if your workload is down that much and your revenue is up that much? Oh, I agree there. Uh, you think they'd be able to provide services, but they're saying they don't have enough public defenders anymore. It's a lie. They're lying about it. And the public defenders do this every couple of years when they want a bigger contract. I mean, this is their their game to get more money. All I'm suggesting is when you're doing less work, in other words, especially in the last three years now, we've had police agencies so-called defunded, so they've reduced the total number of cops. The cops that are out there are not writing as many people up, so they're not throwing as many people into the bin to be considered by the DA. And then in the case of Multnomah County, the Multnomah County DA is taking something like 46% of the cases the cops give him to actually taking them to court. And then the public defenders are saying, we're just overwhelmed. Well, hold on. You have fewer cops generating fewer arrests, generating fewer cases, and a DA who only takes a fraction, less than half of the cases that the DA takes on actually go to court. And you say, and the public defender is overwhelmed under those circumstances? It's absolutely crazy. Let's go to Pinball. Hey, Pinball, welcome to the Lars Larson Show and the RNW. What's on your mind? Oh, thank you for accepting my call again, Lars, and thank you for recommend, uh, recognizing veterans today. But this thing about the drag shows in the libraries, what if me and my friends and our family, what if we wanted to go down to the library and have a, a prayer meeting or a Bible study? What would they say to that? Uh if they offered up their public rooms for, you know, for various community groups, they'd probably be forced to say, you can go ahead and do it. But what they wouldn't do is what the libraries, do, and I've watched the library in my neck of the woods do exactly this. They promote these things as a way to get families and children into the library. Now, I don't know what kind of, you know, sick parents say, it's a healthy thing to bring my five or six-year-old son or daughter down to see a man dressed up usually garishly as a woman, what is the value of that to the child? And I'd love to hear a parent explain how that helps their child be more broad-minded or something else, something a kid doesn't even understand. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your phone calls and emails. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for very nearly 23 years now. We'll mark that date in January. But glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, you're certainly welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars 
Lars Larson Show. And if you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, Elizabeth Hovde joins me now, who's a research analyst and director of the Center for Worker Rights and Healthcare at the Washington Policy Center. But Elizabeth, I want you to talk about the crazy idea that's going on north of the Columbia River. I also want to mention the one that's going on south of the Columbia River, because this is perfect for this show. Both sides of the river, north and south, uh, have decided to do crazy things and then charge workers for those things. And in many cases, make people pay for services they're never going to get. At least in Washington state, there's a chance to reverse it. Oregon has this new long-term paid family leave program in which people are going to be paying taxes. I heard from one of them today, Jim, who wrote to me and said, I'm going to be paying almost 500 bucks next year for a program I'm not even eligible for, but I'll be paying for it. And I would say that you've documented the fact that the same is true of this crazy idea of long-term care, slightly different, but you know the same general idea, charge a lot of people a lot of money and, and then f- fail to actually deliver much of value to most of the people who pay into it. Welcome back, by the way, Elizabeth. Hi, good to be here. And, you know, I should note that Washington is ahead of Oregon on this state family medical leave uh, thing. It um, increased from 0.4%, uh, $0.40 per $100 to $0.80 cents this, last, uh, this last month. So we are paying for another, well, we're already paying for a social program that many people aren't eligible for, can't use, so people can make life choices or if they have medical needs. And now this long-term care payroll tax is going to take 58 cents of every $100. And, you know, it just looks like issue after issue that the state can't fund through a different angle is going to come at the payroll taxes and hurt workers. And none of it is personal. I mean, Elizabeth, if if somebody wants to take time off from work, I've seen so many families who've, you know, called the show and said, well, you know, my wife and I are going to have a baby. Great. Congrats. And they say, and we plan to have her take time off from her job or even maybe leave her job. Oh, how are you going to do that? Well, we've spent the last few years putting money aside that's their money. And then when, you know, mom wants to take time off after the birth of the baby, they pay for it themselves out of their own money. This is one where somebody says, I'm going to set up a program that's going to do good things for people. And you say, how are you going to pay for that? I'm going to reach into your pocket and take your money. And you go, well, am I qualified for the program? No, uh, you're not going to get anything out of it all, but you're going to pay for it. I don't know of anybody who would think that's a reasonable way of pursuing that. A lot of people are letting compassion dictate really bad policy in both these states. You know, uh, you can have compassion. You can have safety net programs for people in need. But what the state is doing, states are doing, is they're creating these wide safety nets for people in need and people not in need. And it's going to sink us. Well, and talk in particular about the long-term care law passed in 2019. And what it promised Mm -hmm. was we're going to put a bunch of money aside. Uh, we're going to take it from all these workers. But then we have a whole list of disqualifiers. You're not qualified if you don't pay in for 10 years. You don't, you're not qualified if you decide to move out of the state after paying right. in for 10 years. You're disqualified by that. And even if you do manage to collect, you can collect a maximum of $36,500 in your lifetime, which would pay for about three months in long-term care. Um, is there a chance for for lawmakers in Olympia to kill this thing in the upcoming legislative session? 
They have a perfect chance. Just yesterday, I read a repeal bill that was pre-filed by Representative Abarno, and it would repeal this thing, would take it away. And they have a total chance to do this. You know, I think a lot of the lawmakers did not know what a bad deal this was when it was voted in, or maybe they weren't even in the legislature. But for three sessions now, we watched them change the bill because of how poorly written it is, what a mess it is, how it's going to mistreat some workers, how it's going to harm the low-income workers who are going to be paying for the long-term care needs of some people who don't even need long-term care help from the government. So right now there's a repeal bill that's been filed. I don't think it'll get a hearing. Um, Neither does the sponsor, really. And for that matter, I'm not even sure the LTSS commission, which is the commission that oversees this long-term care law, will even have their recommendations for more of the fixes that they're proposing to help this thing along. Um, I think that more fixes will interrupt the state's solvent tour that it's on right now. It's it's yelling from the top of its lungs that this thing is solvent, even when the actuarial firm that studied it says maybe it's solvent, maybe it's not. And we watch payroll taxes for other things, like the paid family and medical leave, rise even double in just two years. So if if they don't repeal it, my big concern is that once it's up and operating in some fashion, even if it's kind of a half-assed fashion, that the result mm-hmm. will be, well, now we can't get rid of it because we've already got a bunch of people covered by it or, or paying, <laughs> exactly. you know, getting benefits from it. And they'll say our only choice will be to shovel billions of dollars into it to patch the financial holes that we knew were there all along. Exactly. You know, the Paid Family Medical Leave Act is seeing the same thing. They said around $350 million last legislative session. I was just in a hearing or work session where they talked about doing that again this year to deal with cash deficits to that program. And, you know, we have a chance to stop this program before it even begins. Once it's in, I have no hope that it will go away ever. Well, and, and is what they're doing even legal to do, to say we're going to take a bunch of money from a bunch of people who don't necessarily qualify for this, may never qualify for it, and then we're going to use it to pay benefits that will start to get paid out at some point, and that I think a lot of people are going to find are thoroughly inadequate. If if you really find yourself, say, still during your work during your du- during your working years, saying I need long term care for months or years, uh, they're going to find out. Okay, this will cover you for three months, and then after that, you're out the door again. Yeah, you know, this isn't much unlike workers' compensation, right? The the state has a monopoly on that system as well. You may never use it. You'll get it. And what's even worse about this one is they're not selling it as a social program, which is what it is. They're selling it as they're calling the tax they're going to take from you starting in July a premium. It's not a premium. This doesn't guarantee you any insurance against these life needs. And that's the biggest problem I see with creating a savings account for workers. We're all going to have life needs. All those life needs are going to be different. Saving for just one of them and making us do it is is very misguided. I think you're absolutely right. That's Elizabeth Hovde, who's a research analyst at the Washington Policy Center. Elizabeth, always a pleasure. Coming up in a moment, we've got some great news. Across America, millions more people are packing a gun, and for good reason. I'll give you the numbers and the info coming up. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS, and I'll get to one of those calls in just a moment, but there are a couple of things I want to share with you first. That's 866-439-5277, and if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. And, of course, if you want to email, talk at LarsLarson.com. Easy to remember. We tried to make it that way. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. I wanted to share some information with you. I mean, we try to make this program as information-rich as we possibly can. And, of course, you know that uh, I'm a big believer in the Second Amendment. I've owned guns since I was a kid. I own a number of them today. Well, guess what? They just came out with a new National Firearms Survey. And what does that show? The numbers date back to 2018. So they take, they take a look at the numbers because you don't ever, in things like this, firearm surveys, you're not going to find numbers that go back to, say, the last six months. Um, but that's because it's difficult to produce those kind of numbers. Even unemployment numbers only come about once a month. But this says the number of individuals in America who carry a handgun in public places doubled between 2015 and 2018. Now, those numbers are important, too, because we're not talking about during the pandemic. We're not talking about during the George Floyd-driven riots. We're talking about a time that was relative, a relatively good time, you know, that, that crime had not yet begun its stratospheric rise as it has in the last almost three years now. The numbers and percentages that come from the National Firearms Survey in 2018, a national survey of gun owners reflecting national demographics of the 6,721 gun-owning participants, two-thirds of them completed the survey. The number of individuals carrying a loaded handgun increased from 9 million people in America in 2015 to 16 million in 2019. Six million carried a loaded handgun every day, up from about 3 million. So that number doubled. Personal protection against people, other people, was by far the most uh, significant reason to carry. Almost 72% of the people asked said, I carry because I'm worried that somebody else will try to commit a crime against me. Individuals carrying were more often young, male, and from the South, owners of both handguns and long guns. There was no significant difference in the people who carried based on race, education attainment, income, urbanicity, meaning whether you live in a city or the rural areas, the presence of children in a household, or even status as a veteran. And there are a bunch of states that are so-called permitless, meaning constitutional carry states, that differ in whether a permit to to carry a weapon is required. But in either case, does the state have discretion in whom to deny? There are some states that are what are called may issue, meaning you would go to the police and say, I'd like to get a permit. And they say, well, we'll think about it and we'll decide based on a whole bunch of criteria. In the shall issue states, if you go to the police and you meet the legal criteria, in general, the criteria are you haven't been convicted of a felony. Okay, good. You don't have a domestic violence arrest or conviction on your record. And a judge has never sent you to a mental institution. And of the people who carry, you say, well, it's probably all guys. Well, one-third of all Americans own guns. About 58% of that is male, but it still means it's 42% female. And in the survey, a majority of the gun owners cited more than one instance of self-defense. And the estimate for the number of times every year that somebody has to pull a gun and use it to protect themselves from becoming a victim of crime 
is 1.7 million times a year. Now, I always cite the DOJ number, which is closer to 1 million a year, but I try to go with the safest, most conservative number because I think it's more persuasive. If you try to go with the higher numbers, maybe 2.5 million times a year, folks will fault the numbers. At 1 million, almost nobody can fault that statistic. Now, the other thing that I put up in front of you is this idea that public libraries and schools, but public libraries as well around America, have begun hosting what are called drag queen story hours, where somebody who is a man dressed as a woman, generally it's not women dressed as men, but a man dressed as a woman, usually in fairly garish get-up, uh, sits in a public library and reads stories to small children. And a lot of us have said this is inappropriate. You want to go to a drag show that features adults and you're an adult? Go ahead. Whatever floats your boat. But if you say, no, I want this to be exposed to children, I have yet to have any kind of parent or grandparent say to me, I think this has some kind of special value to my kids. But Ray had a comment to make about that. Ray, are you a constitutional lawyer? Um, I am. Okay, I am. can we, yeah, get us to, uh, we wanted you to join us on the phone. So, Ray, what's your take on offering these things up in public, taxpayer funded public libraries around America? Um, yeah, well, uh, constitutionally speaking, the library has to because it makes a, it's, it's uh, by providing a space for them to do that, it's providing what's called a limited purpose public forum. Now, that said, uh, to answer the gentleman uh, who spoken at the end of your uh, previous hour, um, he said, you know, what if I wanted to do a Bible study? Well, yeah, he can. Uh, and, and the library has to let him. They can't stop him. You know, if he wants to do um, Christian Bible story hour, uh, he can. And, you know, the, otherwise it's viewpoint discrimination. It's uh, uh, content discrimination. And both of those things uh, violate the Constitution on their face. Except that every, would you, would you agree with me that every single public library in, makes editorial decisions about what to put on its shelves, right? Uh, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Well, I mean, because otherwise you'd have to say that every public library carries every book in publication, and we know that's not true other than maybe the Library of Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so correct. when a librarian says, we're going to stock these books and we're not going to stock those books, they're making an editorial choice. When they say, we will choose to feature certain kinds of events, is it appropriate for those libraries as public institutions, most of them are publicly funded. There are a few private libraries, but not very many in America. For them to say there are certain things that are age-appropriate for children and there are other things that are not. You're saying they can't make that decision uh, in, uh, under the Constitution? Well, most courts, have, most courts have found that libraries and schools have pretty broad discretion as to what they include in their libraries. Exactly. Or uh, not so include, Right. Or not include, yes. Right. So, for instance, Ray, if I took what you said at the beginning, you know, and took it to its logical extension, if I said if a group said they want to put up a brass pole and have a strip, a stripper act in front of kids, you'd say, well, if you discriminate against that, you're discriminating against uh, viewpoints or, or expression, right? I, I guess that would depend on... Um how uh, deep they were into a state of undress. I mean, it's a... Uh, uh, well, hold on, um, hold on. Let's say it's full, full undress. If you're telling me that the librarian is not free to say drag queens are not appropriate for children, 
then it would also be inappropriate if the if the librarian is denied that kind of editorial judgment, wouldn't they also be denied the editorial judgment to say a full-on strip show is inappropriate for kids? Because it's the same kind of decision. You're deciding whether or not a particular kind of display is appropriate for kids, aren't you? But to some degree, it all depends. Uh, there you're kind of getting into the area of uh, obscenity law. Uh, and, and there is the uh, human body obscene. Their, uh, I'll bet there are library books in the library that show uh, there have to be medical books within the library that show the human body and even show human body parts. Uh, and so you're saying it's OK to say you can't have the strip show, but it's OK perfectly to aim a drag queen show at kids. Ray, I don't think that that's protected by the Constitution. And you've got the Lars Larson show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. And, of course, uh, you can always call in or send an email or any of the rest of those things. Glad to have you. Uh, Lance LaRusso joins me now, who's an attorney, a former police officer, and the author of the books When Cops Kill and Blue News. The proceeds of those books go to police-related charities. Lance, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. I was just seeing some numbers uh, uh, earlier this week, and I know you know them better than I do, but they're, uh, they indicate that the last couple of years have been exceptionally violent and even deadly for people in law enforcement in America. So far this year, we've had over 302 officers shot in the line of duty, and we've had 114 officers shot as part of that in about 79 ambush-style attacks. And you think these are deliberately targeted, and there may be a reason that is driving the targeting of police officers? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that some of it is just we're letting extremely bad people out of jail, and those bad people um, will prey on others, and the only thing standing between them and their prey is law enforcement. So they are going to strike out when they don't want to go back to jail. They're going to strike out when they believe there's no consequences for their actions, and they're going to strike out just because they're mean. And sometimes that's the reason why they're committing crimes and the reason they're, they're um, preying on people is because they're mean. The ambush-style attacks really are troubling because this is not a person where an officer is chasing someone through the woods after an armed robbery. These are the officers who are sitting in their cars and they're shot. These are the officers who are called and then ambushed or the officers who are called because there's a disturbance and there's a presence there and somebody just unleashes on them. So it is very troubling, and it has a lot to do with the rhetoric. I mean, you can't deny it. In 2018, we had nine officers killed in vehicular assault. Normally, you have about two a year, where somebody just used a vehicle as a weapon and said, well, I'm just going to try and kill a police officer. So it is much more dangerous on the street for officers than it ever was, in large part due to the rhetoric and the people we're letting out of prison. And Lance, when you say the rhetoric, you're talking about the communication of various messages, both from people in politics and people in the private sector, communicating generally through mainstream media and or social media, right? Oh, absolutely. And I want to make very clear, you know, it's noise. The overwhelming majority of people in the United States support and defend law enforcement. They understand that without a strong law enforcement presence, poor people with you dropped out for just a second there. You said uh, without a strong law enforcement presence, Lance? To be able to run their businesses. So it is the noise, but unfortunately those folks have a large market share and they scream the loudest. 
What would it take to turn this around? An uprising from people who have had enough. And I think we're seeing that. I think we are seeing, for instance, small business owners saying to their city councils and their mayors who have wanted to defund the police, no, you can't do this. You are hurting us. You know, the defund the police movement, as I've said before, is the fastest conceived, implemented, and failed social policy in history. And people are realizing that law enforcement was right to oppose it because they recognize that the people who need the police the most would be disadvantaged by it. And yet we've seen a lot of big cities where they claim to have turned around their point of view, and yet it's not showing up in actual dollars and it's not showing up in actual officers in uniforms on the street. Yeah, and there's, it, it's kind of an evil um, evil behind the scenes that can be perpetrated. So everyone who's ever worked with a budget knows that you can move money around within the budget, within the rules, within the law, I'm not saying they're doing anything illegal, to um, basically reduce the amount of funding available, reduce the amount of advances available. So, for instance, right now, we know there's a lot of departments that are down. The figure I heard is 45% increase in retirements. Uh, this year on law enforcement nationwide. Well, if you're going to replace those folks, replacing somebody who, to the extent you can, that has 25 years of experience, requires more money in the area of recruiting. It requires a lot more money in training. So if you're not funding those efforts and if you're not expanding those recruiting efforts, which are expensive, then you are, in effect, doing nothing to reduce the number, to uh, increase the number of officers on the street. And to your point, Are you putting people in badges on the street to protect the public? That's what the measure should be. Well, and I've seen police agencies that say, well, we're going to reduce the number of patrol officers. We're going to reduce the number of detectives. Seattle infamously said they'd reduce the number of detectives so much so that they literally had to say, we're not investigating sexual assaults unless they involve children. And people were stunned. They said, what what do you mean, rapes, things like that? You're not going to, no, we're not going to do much with it at all. Uh, Sorry. And, and so at that point, you, don't, you may even lose some of your public backing because the public then says, you mean the police are saying they're not going to protect us? And the police say, well, we take the cases we can get. We send them to the, the prosecutor. And a lot of these George Soros prosecutors are saying, we're not going to prosecute them. And the judges say, we're not going to send them away for a long time. If anything, we're going to let them out more frequently. And governors who've cut you know thousands of, of convicted criminals loose. And so... When you go out and try to get a young man or woman to sign up and say, would you like to be part of this program? They look at what's going on just in the last few years and say, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, the recruiting has gotten more difficult. And, and I can tell you, I just taught a class this afternoon of, uh, of law enforcement officers and public safety officers from around the state of Georgia. And it's just, it, it, is, it is enlightening and heartwarming to see the level of dedication they have. I still see the 22-year-olds and the 23-year-olds, especially people that are coming out of our military who still want to serve. They're out there. But I can tell you when you have departments that are making decisions like that, that they're not going to investigate sex crimes, more often than not, it's because they don't have the manpower to do it. They don't have the extra um, person available to go interview to make that case of a crime or an allegation of a crime because their first obligation of every police department is to respond to 911 calls and recalls for emergency service. So they're shutting down, and instead of being mad at 
the politicians who are letting this happen and the leaders of the community who are, you know, controlling the purse strings, a lot of people are striking out at law enforcement. And it's just it's either misguided or they failed eighth grade civics. I don't know. Maybe it's both. See, because, Lance, my thought is that you're right, that that there are people who are deliberately targeting cops and they mean to do violence to them, either because, as you said, they're mean or they have criminal records or they have some some internal personal reason to hate cops. But then where you'd ordinarily expect a big public outcry saying, hey, how dare you attack our cops? You've got a, a public that's a little bit dispirited because they say, yeah, the last time I called 911, it took 15 minutes to get through. And then the police didn't show up. Uh, very quickly, and then nothing actually happened. So the people you would ordinarily ordinarily have raising a ruckus, saying you got to stop this stuff, you got to stop the attacks on cops, uh, they're not necessarily saying they endorse. Uh, they're not saying they endorse the attacks on cops, but they're saying, yeah, well, y- you haven't been all that useful lately, so we're we're not necessarily going to you know bend over backwards to try to support you. And I think that's sad as well. But I don't know what to do about it. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I think, you know, we had two deputies murdered in a community right close to me in September, and the outpouring of support was just, it was global. It was unbelievable. In my mind, I have a picture uh, of a man who was kneeling on the side of the roadway for hours with an American flag just in honor of the fallen deputy that he never knew. Good. So I think people do support, but I, I think the problem that you have is it's a vicious cycle when people basically start living behind locked doors thinking there are no other options for us and the police are not going to be here to protect us. I don't know if you saw those pictures from, uh, I think it's Philadelphia, where Philadelphia uh, security. Yeah, because the store owner says, I've got to hire my own security because the police aren't getting it done. That's Lance LaRusso, the author of When Cops Kill and Blue News. Proceeds from that go to police charities. Lance, thank you very much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to point out something you may not see in a lot of other mainstream media today, and then I'll get to a naysayer, Uh, but it's about Pearl Harbor. All those years ago, 1941, December the 7th, and so much of media barely mentions it today. And I saw this great piece by Dean Karyanis, who once worked for talk radio giant Rush Limbaugh, and uh, he's quite quite a very good writer. But he talks about an interview he did about half a dozen years ago, and he writes, as America marks the 81st anniversary of the Japanese empire bombing Pearl Harbor, a threat from communist China looms on the Pacific horizon. So it's a fitting moment to hear the voices of our 2,390 military and civilian dead in that catastrophe, reminding us that words alone cannot safeguard our liberty. He says, in 2016, I interviewed Lieutenant Jim Downing. At 103 years of age, the second oldest survivor of the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, and I asked what advice he'd give America on avoiding conflicts. And you know what he said? This man, Jim Downing, Lieutenant Jim Downing, survivor of Pearl Harbor, said, Weakness invites aggression. Remember Pearl Harbor, keep America strong. And then Dean Carianis points out, he says, Contrast this wisdom with Secretary Anthony Blinken's posture last Sunday on CNN's State of the Union, which was not unlike that of President Franklin Roosevelt in the days after our entry into World War II, one that led Tokyo to believe that America would not punch back when hit. Blinken said, it's very important that we're communicating directly and clearly with China. 
We want to make sure there are no misunderstandings, no miscommunication, that we have a floor under our relationship and that the president's had a productive conversation in that sense. We want to make sure there are no, that there are active channels of communication, and that's the best way to make sure there is no miscommunication. After using versions of communication and conversation five different times, he repeated the sentiment of President Biden's first press secretary, Jen Psaki, after Beijing tested a hypersonic missile in October of last year. After Reuters reported that the carrier killer weapon capable of delivering a nuclear payload had caught the administration by surprise, Psaki shrugged. We welcome stiff competition, she burbled, but we do not want that competition to veer into conflict, and that is certainly what we convey privately as well. In another example of this mindset, he writes, in September of last year, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, I don't think much of Milley either, informed Congress that he had promised his counterpart in the People's Liberation Army, General Li Zhu Chang, that he had warned him and would warn him about any American attack, a courtesy that is laughable to think a communist foe would return. Talking was the rule of the day leading up to December 7, 1941, as FDR told Congress in his December 8th day of infamy speech. The United States was at peace with Japan and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. He noted that just an hour after the strike on Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent message containing no threat nor hint of war or armed attack. Due to the distance the strike force had to cross, Roosevelt said it was obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many weeks or days ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government had deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. As Dean Karianis writes, we're in a competition with communist China today, just as we were with imperial Japan eight decades ago. But the stakes of losing aren't mere bankruptcy like the board game Monopoly. They're more akin to risk, the game of strategic conquest. And our opponents are armed not with pithy conversation, but with warships, armies, jets, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. The price for losing to the Japanese and their Axis allies, including Nazi Germany, would be akin to how the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, described the outbreak of World War I. The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. The darkness following a victory by communist China would eclipse not just Europe, but the world, and it might not live for generations. Words have their place in forestalling that future, but to lean on them too much is dangerous. The voices of Pearl Harbor are whispering that message to us today. I heard them myself in person. I think he makes a very good point. I'm glad to share that with you. Let's go to Scott, who's an ace here. Hey, Scott, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on Pearl Harbor Day 2022. Well, thank you, sir, uh, for taking my call. Uh, first of all, I wanted to agree with you that defunding the police is a terrible idea. Um, but to kind of be the devil's advocate, I will say that I believe that the police have had far too much free reign um, and predatory policing and $1.5 billion paid out in settlements due to police misconduct, I think is, is something worth noting. And I do disagree with the how you don't ever show 
the other side of that coin, but a blind following of... of no, I do. Scott, you've heard me a hundred times say, I mean, numbers of cases where a cop breaks the law, shoots, kill, kills somebody, hurts somebody, and is prosecuted, and I applaud the prosecution, and I've done exactly that. I've always said I always support the police until and unless they break the law or the rules of their department. What I have a problem with are the people who say, well, that cop shot... Uh, a person who was black, and I say the person who was black was A, presenting a threat, B, was armed, and was presenting a present danger, and the cop took action, and people don't like that. So when you say free reign, they don't have free reign. They're covered by the rules of their apartment, they're co covered by the rules of their state, their co laws of their state, and they're covered by the federal laws as well, not to mention they're covered by the U.S. Constitution. And if they violate the constitutional rights of a citizen, they get punished for it. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com. View the videos. And then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.